All right, Joshua chapter 9. As we come to Joshua chapter 9, they've had the two great battles in the promised land. Led by Joshua, the people have gone in the promised land. And the Israelites have had the very successful battle of Jericho. Then the defeated Ai, because they had, Achan had taken from the accursed thing. And then the rematch with a different battle plan. They had great victory. Then we left off last week where Joshua renewed the covenant with the Lord. They built the altar. They read the law. And they reminded themselves from the youngest to the oldest to the familiar and the stranger that God's word reigns supreme over everything. And so Joshua reset the compass and the plumb line for the people for the right perspective because as intense as crossing the Jordan River was, as intense as the Battle of Jericho was, and the defeat and the heartbreak from Ai's defeat, and then the rebound, there would just be so much emotion amongst God's people and so much more to conquer. After those two battles, like how are we going to face the rest of these battles and fulfill what God's called us to do? But with the Lord, it's always forward, onward, and upward, and they need to go forward. And so tonight we read about them going forward to fulfill what God commanded them to do to enter into the promises he had for them as the people of covenant, and in their case, to be his instrument of wrath against the people that God had judged. And that's the context we pick it up in chapter 9. Verse 1. We're going to read the entire chapter because this story all goes together, and I look for a good halfway point. I simply could not find it. It just, we need to read the whole chapter together. And so it came to pass when all the kings who were on this side of the Jordan... In the hills and the lowland and all the coasts of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite, and they heard about it, that is the success of Joshua and Israel, that they gathered together to fight Joshua and Israel with one accord. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they worked craftily and went and pretended to be ambassadors. And they took old sacks on their donkeys and old wineskins torn and mended, old patched sandals on their feet and old garments on themselves. And all the bread of their provisions were dry and moldy. And they went to Joshua to the camp at Gilgal and they said to him and to the men of Israel, we have come from a far country. Now therefore make a covenant with us. Then the men of Israel said to the Hivites, perhaps you dwell among us. So how can we make a covenant with you? But they said to Joshua, we are your servants. And Joshua said to them, who are you? Where do you come from? Two good questions. Verse 9. So they said to him, from a very far country, your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard of his fame and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, king of Heshbon, and Og, king of Bashan, who, who was at Ashtaroth. Therefore, our elders and all the inhabitants of our country spoke to us, saying, Take provisions with you for the journey, and go to meet them, and say to them, We are your servants, and now therefore make a covenant with us. This bread of ours we took hot for our provisions from our houses, and on the day we departed to come to you. But now, look, it's dry and moldy. And these wineskins which we filled were new, and see, they're torn. And these are garments, and our sandals have become old because of a very long journey. Then the men of Israel took some of their provisions... But they did not ask counsel of the Lord. So Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the rulers of the congregation swore to them. And it happened at the end of three days after they had made a covenant with them that they heard that they were their neighbors who dwelt near them. And the children of Israel journeyed and came to their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Chebriah, 
Berah, and Kirjath-Jerim. But the children of Israel did not attack them because the rulers of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel, and all the congregation complained against the rulers. Then all the rulers said to the congregation, We've sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel. Now therefore we may not touch them. This we will do to them. We will let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath which we swore to them. And the ruler said to them, Let them live, but let them be woodcutters and water carriers for all the congregation as the rulers had promised them. Then Joshua called for them, and he spoke to them, saying, Why have you deceived us, saying, We are very far from you when you dwell near? Now therefore you are cursed, and none of you shall be freed from being slaves, woodcutters and water carriers for the house of my God. So they answered Joshua and said, Because your servants were clearly told that the Lord your God commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. Therefore, we are very much afraid for our lives because of you and have done this thing. And now here we are in your hands. Do with us as seems good and right to do to us. So he did to them and delivered them out of the hand of the children of Israel so they did not kill them. And that day Joshua made them woodcutters and water carriers for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord in the place which he would choose even to this day. Pretty unique story. Some of you are familiar with this story. Now, you would think, like, hey, we could just break this oath. Like, they made a bad decision, you know? And, like, well, this is a really bad decision. Since God told us to wipe everybody out, now we know these are the people supposed to be wiped out. So we should break our oath and wipe them out. That would seem to apply, right? Like, when you come to what you don't know, you fall back on what you do know. Since God said they're supposed to be wiped out, we made this covenant. We shouldn't have done that. But we know we're supposed to wipe them out, so we should wipe them out. That would seem to make sense at face value. Except there actually is an even higher law, evidently, with the Lord on this. That your yes being yes, even in this situation, at least in the context of this situation, is to be followed through on. Now, we just talked about this recently on the Sermon on the Mount series that your yes should be yes and your words need to be credible. And I mentioned the only exception is when your yes is an obvious sin, you're not going to follow through on that. It's bad to make a yes and no, but it's worse to follow through on a yes when it, in fact, is going to be sinful and destructive to you and other people because sin always affects you and other people. But that's not really the context here. There's something bigger. Now, the Gibeonites were allowed to live, and they are still part of chapter 10 as well later tonight. You can't fault them. They've heard what's going on. They're, this is their best chance at living as a people group, extending their generations as a people group. They were mighty militarily. We see that in the next chapter. And they didn't even want to fight Israel because they knew they were defeated. So in some ways, they actually had faith. They knew they would not be victorious in battle against Israel. And they themselves were a mighty warrior people. So as they thought it through, they came up with this plan of deceit to save their lives. And as Satan said of humanity in the book of Job, yea, skin for skin, all that a man has, he'll give to save his life. And when you're pleading for your life, you're pleading for your life. And when you're desperate for your life, you're desperate for your life. I mean, you'll negotiate almost anything to keep your life if you're determined to live. That's very common in the human experience in human history. So we understand contextually why they would deceive Joshua. In reality, we would even blame them for trying to deceive Joshua because it's the only way they can live. They have marriages. They have kids. They have grandkids. They want to live. So they figure it's better off to be water carriers and woodcutters in, for Israel than to be wiped out by Israel. 
We can understand that. I think we can all relate to that. But some people are willing to live in tyranny and as slaves to authoritarian, totalitarian governments, where you're always going to be a second-class citizen, which is what was always going to be for them. That's what some people are. Some people are willing to live like that. Many people aren't. But they wanted to live. And they don't have a relationship with the Lord. And now they're actually going to be serving the Lord. So it's not quite like Rahab and her faith, but it is interesting how this played out. Now, later on, centuries later, when Saul became the first king and became a bad king and God rejected him and David became the good king that replaced him, after Saul died, there became revealed that there was a curse on the land of Israel because King Saul had killed Gibeonites, these people. He just took it upon himself saying, you know what, that was a bad covenant 400 years ago and going to wipe these Gibeonites out. And he killed Gibeonites. Saul broke the covenant that Israel made with the Gibeonites and killed them. And then when God said there was innocent blood on the land and it had to be made straight, it was the sons of Saul who were executed by David's reign in obedience to God's justice on the house of Saul for what they did to the Gibeonites. Which tells us 400 years later, in the context of this story, that Joshua did the right thing after he did the wrong thing. He was deceived in this covenant, but they all understood that it was more important to keep the covenant was a higher law than breaking it, which is a lower law. And honestly, when you read stuff like this, you think, well, who's sufficient for these things? Right? Like, you know, like Rahab lies, and she's in the hall of faith for lying and hiding the spies, and man, it really is rightfully dividing the word of Scripture, looking at the context, and letting the Holy Spirit guide us in the Scriptures in personal application for our lives. But you need to understand the context, and we need to tonight, that this is the context. We know, as Scripture interprets Scripture in the later historical books, that although Joshua was deceived, he made the right decision to spare the Gibeonites, And hundreds of years later, when Saul would not spare the Gibeonites and he executed them, his own sons were executed because he did transgress this oath and this covenant. That's what we know in the lane of Scripture in the context for us. That's what we know. So moving forward from that, we have a couple elements here. We have the deception of the Gibeonites, and we have... The failure of Joshua. Now, again, we were talking about the deception of the Gibeonites. It's very understandable. It's understandable that this is the best plan they have, and they go for it. But the words associated with their plan should give us a a red flag if we're in the house of Joshua, which we are tonight as the people of covenant. It says they worked craftily, verse 3. They pretended to be something. So let's think about this. These Gibeonites are working craftily, and they're pretending to be something that they're not. They created props, smoke and mirrors, if you will, of deceit. They had props of deceit. Their props looked and were presented as factual, but there was deceit behind 
the props. Oh, look, you can trust us. This is the information behind these things. And they presented a certain way. In willful deceit, deliberate deceit, and the man, the leader, and the people of covenant were deceived by it. These people that were deceiving God's people, they lied through their teeth, and they lied to their face. These guys stood there right before Joshua and lied through their teeth to the face of Joshua representing the people of God. You can trust us. Really, you can. You can trust us. Look at our props. You can trust us. Jesus tells us that Satan is the father of lies. He's the master of deceit. In fact, so capable of deceiving and lying is Satan that Paul the Apostle talked about him having deceiving lies and wonders. Satan does miraculous deception, or we would say supernatural deception, because of course he's a powerful being outside this dimension. At one time, he was probably the most prized created being ever by God that God created. He has incredible powers far beyond any of us can even imagine. Whatever aliens you've ever seen in a movie for aliens, he's far superior to those aliens. But he's not God. But he is the father of lies. He's the accuser of the brethren, and he comes from deceit. Always deceit. Now, we're told when Jesus went to the cross that he, he disarmed principalities and powers, that he, we're told in Corinthians that God catches the wise in their own craftiness. So the irony of Satan entering Judas to crucify Jesus in all his intellect, Satan as a being, a superior being to us apart from Christ, in all of his superior intellect, like super alien superior intellect, thought that he was thwarting the plan of God for the redemption of humanity and the plan of the ages when he entered Judas to see Jesus crucified. So we know he's not all-knowing, and that was his limit. And then we know from the Old Testament that God catches the wise in their own craftiness. And the Lord, the Father, allows the Son to go to the cross. And in so doing, fulfilling the plan of redemption, prophesied from Genesis 3.15 throughout the entire Old Testament to the time Christ came and rose from the grave, that he also caught Satan in his craftiness. For he confounds the wise, he, he confounds them in their craftiness. So when Jesus was risen from the tomb and Satan was completely defeated in his power over humanity, sinful humanity, once we're redeemed through faith in Christ, God catches the wise in our own craftiness. So for all the deceit that men plot and plan against you and me personally, directly in personal relationships or on a broader scale, human governments, global governments, just know this, the Lord will always catch them in their craftiness and their deceit. But it doesn't eliminate the reality that there is the master agent of deceit, the father of lies, deceiving the world, seeking to deceive the church with lying signs and wonders. And we're told by Jesus before his coming, I've been saying this recently, deception is the mark of the end game. When you're talking about the second coming, 
You are talking about deception at the highest level on planet Earth. You are talking about spiritual deception from the father of lies, deception concerning the person and the work of Jesus Christ, false Christ, and so forth. You are talking about, depending on how you look at certain scriptures, a great falling away from the faith. When it talks about that in Thessalonians, some people say, oh, that's the, the church being caught up to be with the Lord. Others say, no, that's the church falling away. That's the church, a great falling away from the faith. We know the Bible warns us of great falling away either way from the faith by deception. And Jesus tells his disciples, talking about his return, make sure that no one deceives you. That's the first thing he says. So before he talks about plagues and wars and rumors of wars and all those things, the first thing he warns about is global deception concerning his person and his plans and purposes. And then we're told, once that restrains the deceit and the father of lies is removed, that people who are already delusional and deceived will be, be completely given over to their deception because of their unbelief. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We also know in the book of Revelation, as the scroll is open and the bowls and the trumpets, that people keep hardening their hearts and they continue to believe lies. So there's this end game on planet Earth unfolding down the stretch that is cataclysmic, chaotic, it's normal, and completely dysfunctional at the same time. Because human beings adjust and adapt, don't they? You ever notice how kids from broken families can adapt to the most dysfunctional, evil environment and it becomes normal? That's what human beings do. We don't evolve, but we adapt. And even in the worst human conditions, human beings learn how to adapt, whether it's in a Nazi concentration camp or the Soviet gulags. Human beings learn how to adapt. So this end game deception Listen to me very carefully. The last generation, and Pastor Chuck thought he was the last generation. The last generation will see the greatest deception on a global level that any generation has ever seen in humankind. And the whole planet will be able to see the deception. And the whole planet will see when the Lord comes back. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. So... Looking at this text and this purposeful deception and bringing it out to our timeline and the return of Christ, we understand that the potential as far as of Jesus Christ in 2021 to be deceived and led astray spiritually by the devil, the father of lies, and by men and women who are led by him with lying signs and wonders or even just agendas and power and position, this is what the Bible tells us and warns us of. So we acknowledge biblically the reality of deception and a greater deception coming to deceive, if even possible, the very elect. That's a reality. I wish it wasn't. Don't you wish you could trust everybody? Don't you wish you could trust politicians, pastors, doctors, family members, lawyers? Wouldn't it be nice if you could trust everybody? Wouldn't it be nice if you could, but you can't? And that is why the Bible tells us, first of all, concerning spiritual things in the body of Christ, to test all things and hold fast that which is good. That's a powerful exhortation in the New Testament writings. Test all things... 
hold fast that which is good. Okay, yeah, all right, that's good. So just how do we test all things and hold fast that which is good? Well, for one, we're told that God's given us his spirit. And his spirit confirms that we're his children, born again in the spirit. And the spirit gives us the ability to discern things. We know that one of the gifts of the spirit is the gift of discernment. But we know that we're made alive. And so in general, we have the mind of Christ. So if we're abiding in the spirit, we can test all things and, and discern things by inviting the Lord to lead and guide us and direct us. This is the idea behind the Old Testament verse of Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. To trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding, but acknowledge him in all your ways, and he will direct your path. Because things are not always the way they seem to be. For your personal life decisions, for the body of Christ in general, and humanity overall. Things are not always the way they seem to be. So we're called to test all things, and the Spirit will help us test all things. Also, when Paul the Apostle and Silas were out there on their missionary journeys, remember when they came to Berea, and they got in the synagogue, and they opened the scrolls, and they said, this is speaking of Christ. This is the Messiah. And what do we read about the Bereans? It says that they searched the Scriptures to see if these things were so. So they tested all things by the Scriptures, by the Word of God. These guys got up and said this, and they said, all right, well, they searched the scriptures, and we're told by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit tells us something about them. You know, it's always nice in the Bible when the Holy Spirit says something nice about somebody, like David was God's friend, or Abraham was God's friend. It's nice like that. We are told that they were more noble or of a higher character the Bereans, because they searched the scriptures. They wouldn't just believe it because somebody got up in a synagogue, read a scroll, and said, this is what this means. No, they tested all things. They searched the scriptures, and thus they knew for themselves that Christ was the Christ. Kind of like even the Samaritan woman at the well, when she came back to her village and told everyone, could this be the Christ? And then when they listened to him, they said, you told us, but now we believe for ourselves. Because the Spirit would confirm the truth of what Jesus was saying to those who listened to him. So we're to trust in the Lord with all of our heart, test all things, hold fast that which is good, lean not on our own understanding, acknowledge him in all of our ways, he will direct our path. We're told the prudent foresee evil and take refuge, but the foolish pass on and are punished. That's an interesting proverb. What's even more interesting, it pops up twice in Proverbs. You know, whenever you get a, a verse that says the same thing twice, like two different verses... In the Bible? I mean, that gets my attention. That's a double emphasis. The prudent foresee evil. That is, they test all things. And they take refuge. Oh, that's evil. And they take refuge. But the foolish, they don't test things. They pass on and are punished. Now, before I move on, I'll just tell you sort of a personal opinion on something where... When I read the book, The Gift of Fear, it was a number, it was a number one bestseller in New York Times about 20 years ago, about stalkers, violent criminals. It was a pretty famous book, actually. I read it because someone was threatening me. And someone recommended it who had been threatened and had, like, restraining orders and stuff like that. So I, I got the book. And one thing it said, and it's just totally a secular book, so I'm just putting something out there for you, like, more just to think about. But it said, it talked about how animals have innate instincts that recognize fear. So an antelope senses a lion before the lion comes or the jaguar or whatever. And it says that studies show that human beings have an innate instinct to recognize fear. That you sense fear 
you'll have a, a, a sensing of fear perhaps before something happens. Now, we trained our daughters, like, hey, don't buy gas at a strange gas station in the far, you know, pump over here in the dark. Like, you, you train your kids, like, hey, don't flirt with weird guys, because they're the guys that always do bad stuff. You know, like, don't give them a reason to stalk you, whatever. So, you, these are things you learn in this book, actually, in human behavior, like, but when I read this, and it talked about instinctive fear, I, I had this remembrance in my life, and I'll tell you why I believe this is, is true, that in my life, twice I've been in a situation where there's sharks very close by, large sharks. Once in Australia and uh, northern New South Wales, I felt this incredible fear come upon me. It was an overcast day, about six-foot surf near Tuncurry and Foster Tuncurry area, and I was out there with one other person, and my friend was on the bluff, and I just suddenly sensed this fear, like this incredible fear like I'd never felt before in my life. And lo and behold, like a 14-foot hammerhead was just right near me. Confirmed. Another time in South Africa, Cave Rock, a place known for sharks, really good surf. I was out at Cave Rock, and I just sensed this fear, like the same feeling. This is after Australia, the exact same feeling. And lo and behold, a giant shark jumped up about 20 feet in front of us. There about eight of us out. And we all paddled as fast as we could. I knocked the fins off my board. They want to hit the reef coming in on the reef at Cave Rock. It was terrifying. I went back to Cave Rock a year later with Tom Kern, just me and him. I said, you know, I'm 0 for 1 at this spot. We paddled out of Cave Rock. I had the same feeling, this fear. And wouldn't you know, there's a six-foot shark coming right at me in the face of a wave. Now, two other times in my life, once in Durban, South Africa, and another time, I've had the same incredible sense of fear, but I did not see a shark. But I could measure that emotion. I'm not talking like fear like someone threatening you or being in an open ocean crying for mercy. I'm talking about an instinctive fear, like a primal fear. I had it. And I've not had it since. So I believe that it's very possible that God gives us an instinctive fear that this is a bad situation and you need to get away from it. And you feel a fear you've never felt before. You know, you might think, oh, no, God's not giving me a spirit of fear but love, power, and sound mind. Right, but he's also giving you an instinctive fear to warn you and prevent you from going into a situation. Don't go in that house. Don't go in that confrontation. Don't get in that car. You got a bad feeling about this Uber? Then just call another one. You know, that's what I'm talking about. It, it, it's for me in my own life, I'm testifying what I have felt and experienced in the context of it. Now, spiritually, I've had discernment with the Lord's like, don't do this, don't do that, and I face the consequences of doing it. And I've also learned to say, hey, you know what? <laughs> no, we're not doing this. So what I'm saying is here, there is deception, and there is things, there are people and spiritual forces that would try and destroy you in your walk, in your fruit, in your life, and everything you love and hold dear. And we have to test all things. And we have to be wise and discerning. We have to know our mind. We have to know the frequency of the Lord. We need to know our body and how our body is with certain things. Like when people have dietary challenges and they realize, like, every time I drink milk, I get really sick. Or every time I have bread and, you know, gluten, I get really sick. And you learn to discern those things. Like every time I, I, I eat something with MSG, I throw up. You know, like your body's like rejecting those chemicals and stuff. 
You need to know your mind, your body, and your spirit. God's made us that way. Spirit, mind, and body. We need to protect our mind, protect our body, protect our spirit. We need to keep things pure. So test all things and hold fast that which is good. Spiritually, practically. Let the Lord guide you. I'm not going to give an account for what other people choose to do with their life, what they choose to eat or not eat, what they do with their body and don't do. I'm going to give an account for my life. That's what I'm going to give an account for. But I've learned spiritually and practically to test all things, hold fast that which is good. To not just, because something's presented a certain way, think that that's the facts. Because the devil always presents things to be appealing. And he's a father of lies. And totalitarian, authoritarian governments and people with agendas. Pastor Chuck used to say that people that most concerned him are the ones who scared him with a problem and then had the solution for his problem. You ever notice that? Create the fear and sell you the solution of the fear. Pastor Chuck used to talk about that regularly, if you remember. So whenever someone's trying to really make me afraid and then sell me the solution of what makes me afraid or force the solution on me, I am very skeptical of that. I test all things. I hold fast that which is good. And I'll determine, thank you very much, even in the Soviet Union, what I'm willing to let Trotsky, Lenin, Stalin, and these people do to me. I'd be the same way in Afghanistan if I was there. I know who I am, and I know how I approach things, and I don't fear evil men. And I know that men are crafty. And I've learned to test all things and hold fast that which is good. Test the man in the pulpit. Test the man on the TV. Test them all. Hold fast that which is good. And know that you know and you're at peace with the Lord in what you're testing. This covenant commitment with people, this business venture, this church thing, these health things. How many people have been led astray by doctors who led them astray and mis- misdiagnosed their illnesses? How many people have been led astray by pastors who gave bad counsel or had an agenda in the counsel they gave? I'm not picking on any one group of people. I'm just saying test all things, hold fast that which is good. Things are not always the way they appear to be. And we can't presume that. Man is essentially evil, and even good people have agendas. We should presume, not in pessimism, but in testing all things. We need to ask ourselves, when someone's trying to take something from us, particularly personal freedoms, what are they doing and why, and what's their agenda? And am I willing to surrender those personal freedoms to their agenda and how it's going to affect me? Because one thing we see also here in this passage is there's no going back. There are certain decisions you make from deception that you can't come back from. they, They couldn't go back. Joshua couldn't say, I made a big mistake, cancel that covenant. It was done. It was spilt milk. He can't go back and undo that. There are decisions we make that we cannot undo that we've been deceived into making. Whether we, we sign the house over to somebody not realizing that they actually stole the house from us. Or when we signed that contract, we actually gave up our rights to, to dispute that in a court of law. There are all kinds of deceptions out there. And many of them you can't come back from and you can't undo them. So we need to be very wise and learn from their mistakes to test all things, hold fast that which is good, foresee evil, take refuge, and don't be foolish to pass on after the mass is going off a cliff, whatever they're doing and whatever that cliff is. You just need to know before the Lord what he's calling you to do 
If you're Martin Luther and you nail that 95 thesis on your church door, then nail it on the door. If you're Martin Luther King Jr. and you're told to march peacefully and never return violence for violence, then march on Selma and let people know that all men are created equal. You just need to know in the convictions of your own heart what you're willing to do, not willing to do, in your self-determination, your personal freedoms, and do not be deceived by the devil and evil men. Chapter 10. Now it came to pass when Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had taken Ai and utterly destroyed it, as he had done to Jericho and its king, so he had done to Ai and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them. See, these are the Gibeonites now. That they feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai, and all of its men were mighty. So how insightful is this? This is, what, this is telling us what the Gibeonites are like. They were a powerful people with a mighty city. Verse 3, Therefore Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent Hoham, king of Hebron, Piram, king of Jarmuth, Jephiah, king of Lashish, and Dibir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, that we may attack Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the children of Israel. Therefore the five kings, the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon, gathered together and went up, they and all their armies, and camped before Gibeon and made war against it. Then the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp at Gilgal, saying, Do not forsake your servants. Come up to us quickly. Save us and help us. For the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the mountains have gathered together against us. So Joshua ascended from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have delivered them to your hand. Not a man of them shall stand before you. Don't you just love it when the Lord has your back? That's a wonderful verse. Verse 9. Joshua therefore came upon them suddenly, having marched all night from Gilgal. So the Lord routed them before Israel, killed them with the great slaughter at Gibeon, chased them along the road that goes to Beth Horon, and struck them down as far as Ezekah and Makeda. And it happened, as they fled before Israel, and they're on the descent to Beth Horon, that the Lord cast down large hailstones from heaven on them as far as Ezekah, and they died. And there were more who died from the hailstones than the children of Israel killed with the sword. Quick note. Sometimes God's wrath is executed by both men and supernaturally at the same time. We see that right here. Israel is the agent of wrath by God, decreed by God, to wipe out these people who are as evil as any people have ever been in human history. But at the same time, God brings the supernatural with the hail. Sometimes when you read the book of Revelation, you get these different commentaries like, is this, is this describing things of men, like helicopters, you know? Or is this describing like real evil beasts that are supernatural right out of an alien movie? I guess the world will find out when it comes to it. But God, when, he's, when his wrath, we're a planet under wrath. This whole planet is under wrath right now except the church. Hailstones that kill people is nothing compared to the book of Revelation, what's coming to planet Earth. Praise Jesus. We have communion in a few minutes. Again, the worship with Scott. And we're praising Jesus because the wrath of God was shed upon him, so it's not shed upon us. But the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one, his deception, and they're under wrath. Verse 12, Then Joshua spoke to the Lord in that day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel and said to them in the sight of Israel, Sun stand still over Gibeon and moon in the valley of Ajalon. So the sun stood still and the moon stopped till the people had revenge upon their enemies 
Is this not written in the book of Jasher? So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. And there has not been a day like that before or after it that the Lord heeded the voice of a man. For the Lord fought for Israel. And then Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp of Gilgal. Well, two things are fascinating right here. First of all, that the sun stood still. Institute for Creation Research has a lot of information scientifically what they project or suggest happened here, that it's a double day. And one of the things that fascinates me that they found in their research is the opposite side of the planet, there are records of different tribal groups of a double night in their ancient writings. So you can find this information at Institute for Creation Research, but there's a record of ancient civilizations on this side of the planet speaking of a double night, the longest night. So whatever God did, he did it. I mean, he holds him in the span of his hand and calls him by name, right? So whatever he did scientifically, I don't need to explain it either to you. But if God in his universe says, sun stands still, whatever that means, it's what it means. Which is very encouraging, which means God can just do anything he wants whenever he wants to accomplish his will on human earth. So he's never limited by things that we would think would be limiting, like, oh, how is God going to resolve this? Well, he just says, sun stands still. But what's also fascinating in this context is that the man said, sun stand still, that God heeded the voice of a man. God heeded the voice of man. So Joshua was like, sun stand still. Like, who, who has that kind of thing? Say, sun stand still. But Joshua did say that, and he is a man of faith, and the sun stood still. So it makes me think, like, what do we need to say sometimes? Like, sun stand still, as a woman of faith or a man of faith, that God's going to work in a powerful way to show himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are loyal to him. Sun stands still. So the next time you're like, oh my goodness, we're so boxed in. How are we ever going to get out of this? Just go like, oh, sun stands still. Sun stands still and see what the Lord might do to show himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are loyal to him. An impossible situation is a perfect situation for the Lord to show himself strong to us because you have no confidence in yourself at that point and sun stand still is as good as dead rise up and walk i mean sun stand still is like sun stand still but that a day like that where the lord heeded the voice of the man but that's not any man it's the man of god the man of covenant verse 16 but these five kings had fled and hidden themselves in the cave at makadea and it was told Joshua, saying, the five kings have been found hidden in the cave of Machadea. So Joshua said, roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and sent men by it to guard them. And do not stay there yourselves, but pursue your enemies and attack their rear guard. Do not allow them to enter their cities, for the Lord your God has delivered them into your hand. Then it happened while Joshua and the children of Israel made an end of the slain with them with a very great slaughter till they had finished, that those who escaped entered fortified cities. And all the people returned to the camp to Joshua at Machadea in peace. No one moved his tongue against any of the children of Israel. They didn't speak a word against them. Verse 22, Then Joshua said, Open the mouth of the cave and bring out these five kings to me from the cave. And they did so. And they brought out those five kings to him from the cave. And the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Egon. So it was when they brought out those kings to Joshua. And Joshua called for the men of Israel and said to the captains of the men of war who went with him, Come near. Come here. Come here. Come here. Put your feet on the necks of these kings. And they drew near, and they put their feet on their necks. Then Joshua said to them, 
Do not be afraid, nor be dismayed. Be strong and of good courage, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And afterward, Joshua struck them and killed them and hanged them on five trees, and they were hanged on the trees until evening. So it was at the time of the going down of the sun that Joshua commanded that they took them down from the trees, cast them in the cave where they had been, and laid large stones against the cave mouth, which remain until this very day. We need to be reminded that Romans 16 tells us the God of peace will soon crush Satan under our feet. So let me remind you tonight, body of Christ, the God of peace, speaking to the church, will soon crush Satan under your feet. Until then, say the Lord rebuke you and fight the good fight. Just know. And isn't war brutal? These are brutal chapters, but war's brutal. If we live in Afghanistan right now, war's brutal. War is brutal. If we live in Belgium at the offset of World War I, war is brutal. If we live in Poland in 1939, war is brutal. And it was brutal in 1920 when the Soviets came in and tried to take Warsaw as well from the opposite direction. Human history, by and large, is very brutal. We're so blessed to live the life we've lived since 1961 in America. There are many people that live in our area that came from war zones. You know, the last thing my dad did with the Marine Corps was work with all the Southeast Asian boat people coming through Camp Pendleton, 74, 75, 76. Those 10 cities, remember? Tens of thousands of people. These people are all around us here now. When I did a, a youth camp for Mission Alliance Vietnamese churches here in Southern California, I got up and I just started weeping. It was, I did not expect it. But I looked out at this generation of all these young Vietnamese people and I realized that my dad's service to our country was not in vain. It was not in vain. He gave them the chance to have the blessings and privileges that we've had as American citizens. They got to go to La Habra High School and all these other high schools, Westminster, and play football and do all these things and have the same opportunities we had. My dad helped acclimate them to the United States of America and to our society. And that's what the Statue of Liberty is all about, right? War is brutal. It's horrible. You know, Raul Reese did that movie years ago with all the Vietnam veterans, Calvary Chapel, pastors, leaders. I think it was Take That Hill, if I recall the title. This guy, the moment they start talking about it, they all start breaking down sobbing. War is brutal. The human experience is pretty brutal. But we have to be true to the gospel in our own hearts and not be stunned by brutality but be faithful to the Lord in the midst of brutality and be part of the solution not part of the problem and I've learned in studying history that we need to be really careful when we judge history because we weren't there we don't know what it was like we don't know what those people went through we don't know what they're facing we don't know the circumstances it's really easy for one generation to look back on previous generations and pass judgment on them. These chapters are hard because this is brutal. 
I don't like to read stuff like this, but unfortunately stuff like this happening tonight to believers in Afghanistan and other places. And we need to understand that this is reality and we need to pray, walk in the light, and be part of the solution. And we can't be afraid to stand up for what's right and be intimidated by brutal, evil people. We need to die in faith with conviction and character because otherwise you just die a coward. And I have no intention of dying a coward. And I hope you don't either. Verse 28, finishing out the chapter. On that day, Joshua took Maccadeah, struck it in its king with the edge of the sword. He utterly destroyed them, all the people who were in it. He let none remain. He also did to the king of Mekedah as he'd done to the king of Jericho. Then Joshua passed from Mekedah and all Israel with him to Libna, and they fought against Libna, and the king also delivered it in the king in the hand of Israel. He struck it, all the people were within it with the edge of the sword. He let none remain, but did to it as king as he'd done to the king of Jericho. Then Joshua passed from Libna and all Israel with him to Lachish, and they encamped against it, fought against it, and the Lord delivered Lachish near the hand of Israel, who took it on the second day, struck it, and all the people were in it with the edge of the sword, according to all that he had done in Libna. Then Horam, king of Gezer, came up to help Lachish, and Joshua struck him and his people until he left none remaining. From Lachish, Joshua passed Eglon and all Israel with him, and they encamped against it and fought against it. They took it on that day and struck it with the edge of the sword. All the people were in it. He utterly destroyed that day according to all that he had done to Lachish, which, of course, is an obedience to the Lord. Verse 36. So Joshua went up from Eglon and all Israel with him to Hebron. He fought against it. They took it. They struck it with the edge of the sword. It's king. It's city. All the people that were in it. He left none remaining according to all they had done it to Eglon. But utterly destroyed it. And all the people were in it. Then Joshua returned and all Israel with him to Debir, and they fought against it. And he took it and its kings and all of its cities. They struck them with the edge of the sword and utterly destroyed all the people who were in it. He left none remaining as he'd done to Hebron, so he did to Debir and its king, and he'd done to Libna and its king. So Joshua conquered all the land, the mountain country in the south, and the lowland and the wilderness slopes, and all their kings. He left none remaining, but utterly destroyed all that breathed as the Lord God had commanded him. Therein is the obedience. And Joshua conquered them from Kadesh Barina as far as Gaza, and all the country of Goshen, even as far as Gibeon. All these kings in their land Joshua took at one time, because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. And in returning to Gilgal, we have to say he had been totally obedient to this point, what God had called him to do, except for the deception uh, to the Gibeonites. And not, you know, he's stuck with that one. He's, he's yoked to that one for the rest of his life. For centuries they would be. But he returned and he's there as a whole obedient and you think he'd be done, but he's not done. There's still so much more to do. And I'm just reminded with this right here, there's more to do. There's more stuff that, that we need to be faithful to do and fulfill with the Lord until our life is done. There's always, each of us individually have to ask ourselves, what's the next thing the Lord has for me? When we complete certain things and we return, and that was difficult, and that was arduous, and that was unpleasant, but nonetheless we're alive. And we, what's the next thing? We have to decide if, if life is a playground or a battleground. Because if it's a playground, you're living in the world. If it's a battleground, you're living for the kingdom. It doesn't mean you don't have joy in the journey. But life is a battleground. And in essence, serving the Lord, as the kingdom goes forward into darkness, where the light, there's going to be conflict, there's going to be continual battles. And you think, how long can this go on? Well, until you're done. 
Because the only alternative to fighting the good fight, as Paul said, I fought the good fight. Don't you want to say that at the end? I fought the good fight. The only alternative is to say I became, you know, a POW or, or you fled from the battle scene or a collaborator for evil or you went AWOL. Most armies shoot people to go AWOL. George Washington shot his, he said, you flee the British here, we're going to shoot you, we're going to hang you. And the British would do the same thing. Most armies will shoot you if you go AWOL. We just got to remember the battle belongs to the Lord. And it's not our fight, but it's the good fight. We need to run the race, keep the faith, and fight the good fight. So be encouraged, do not be moved. Conflict is a reality in the human experience. But our battles are the Lord's. So we abide in the Lord, we acknowledge the Lord, we trust in the Lord, and we seek him for what's next. We test all things and hold fast that which is good. And when you finish the journey, Lord willing, we'll hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant.